Well, thank you very much, worship team, and thank you for singing. There are many mornings when I will sometimes um, hold my voice in terms of my singing and listen to you sing, and this morning was one of those mornings where you carried me in worship, and I'm grateful to be a part of, of uh, worshiping with people like you and, uh, and the worship team. Thank you so much. I'm uh, Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church, and I'm glad to have you. Thanks for visiting this morning. If you're visiting, if you're a regular attender, it's great to see you guys again. Uh, and thank you for the smiling faces that I see out there every now and then. A couple of you smile. That's kind of nice. Um, and uh, it's always good to see that. Uh, so this morning you have found us in part five of a seven-part series called Meaning Full. And this is a study of the book of Ecclesiastes in which we are saying essentially that there's one big idea that changes everything about life from meaningless to meaningful. And the short story on that is that when there's hope of life after death, it changes everything about life before death. The author of the book of Ecclesiastes, who I'm calling Q, or the teacher, his view is essentially this. He's on the Titanic, and he thinks the ship is sinking, and he's saying, hey, we're all going to die. It doesn't matter what you do, because we're all going to die. And in the meantime, we say, but you know what? Let's take a further view than that. Sure, death is coming for all of us, but there's life after that. And if we believe that, it changes everything. And here's what we said so far in this series, that that changes everything about these things. And these are things that the author Q wrote about in the book of Ecclesiastes, about what is wise versus unwise, we covered in week two, about how we see our work, we covered in week three, about money and wealth, we covered in week four, and today we find ourselves about oppression and injustice. Next week we're going to talk reputations, and then finally about knowing God's will. And the author to Ecclesiastes writes about all of these. Now, today to talk about oppression and injustice, this is something that actually, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that we all have felt in differing degrees and different levels. In fact, if we were right now to be able to take a quick tour of our church facility, we would find some oppression and potential injustice happening in the toddler room right now. Right? When one kid takes something from the other that doesn't belong to him and they might feel this moment of injustice and they get very angry about what might happen and there's a reaction to that and you know we've all been there or seen that. Some of my most emotional moments as a child I remember being moments where I was convinced that the world was against me. Okay? Uh, one of those times was at Knobles Amusement Park, and we were back home on what missionaries call, call furlough, which is now called home assignment. My parents are missionaries. I grew up overseas. And we came to Knobles one, one um, time on our furlough, and I was not tall enough to ride the roller coaster that my sister and her friends could ride. And it tells you something, that I can still remember that emotion right now, right? That I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, Injustice. I mean, cry unfair. Why can I not ride this coaster? Who cares if you have to be whatever, 42 inches or 48 inches? I'm not going to fall out. I'll be fine. Let me ride. And they wouldn't let me ride. And I felt completely ripped off. I remember another time uh, when I was a little older and my dad wanted me to mow the lawn. And I still remember that because my parents still live just less than a half a mile or a quarter mile from the church. And I went out there and I'm like, Really? Like, this lawn does not need mowed, okay? You ever been there, all right, where, where dad says, hey, go mow the lawn? I go out and I start mowing the lawn. I am grumpy, and I have a bad attitude, and it is showing in my mowing. That kind of rhymes, okay? But it, it's true. And my dad comes out and kind of lets me have it a little bit, which is unusual because he's not a let-you-have-it kind of a guy. 
And I still remember the emotion of that moment, feeling like, but I, you can't even see. Like, I can't see where I just mowed. Why am I mowing the lawn, right? And I'm like, this is not fair. I mean, it just isn't fair. Oppression, injustice, are you kidding me? You know, even in college and into seminary, when you're doing group projects and you're assigned to work with people, and they drag you down. You ever had that? Where you're actually trying to do work and you actually suffer because you're trying to do all the work and other people don't care because they know that you're going to do all the work, so why should they, right? You're like, come on, this isn't fair. Now, at, at, a, at a kind of a light and loose level, I think we can all relate to those moments in which we feel like life is coming at us and it isn't fair and it's unjust. Now, it goes a little bit beyond that for our topic this morning uh, on oppression and injustice, but that is the base feeling. That life is against us, there's something pushing on us, and it's not fair, and that's injustice, but oppression takes it further. Oppression in the biblical word, the language of that, means that there is someone in power who is abusing that power and intentionally crushing or trampling the people underneath them. This is not just go mow the lawn even though it doesn't look like it needs mowed. This is of a different nature. This pushes further. It doesn't take us long to relate to this in our world today. You know, we talk ISIS, right? They're getting a lot of publicity, and, and, uh, and rightly so, for what they're doing. But we talk about the, just this week, if you were tracking with the news, they uh, published a pamphlet on their view on um, women and girls of a different religion. And they're essentially endorsing the rape of these girls and women who have a different religious view, saying the Quran teaches that that's okay to do that. Okay? Oppression. Oppression. Injustice. You talk about what the Taliban did to this girl named Malala, which you may have heard of, where they board a bus and they shoot her in the face and the neck because she's going to school. Because what right does a girl have to go to school and get an education? Oppression. Injustice. Human trafficking. Oppression. Injustice. And even here locally in our area, not just internationally, but here locally, I'm telling you, and I think you know some of this, but some you may not realize the extent of what is happening here in our community, in our area. The reality is we have what we call slumlords in our area. Landlords who let a property go to waste and continue to charge rent, and it puts a tenant in an impossible situation of not being able to find another place to go and yet living in really quite squalid conditions. There's families in our community, some of whom send their children to school, who end up smelling like animal waste because they live in that. There are, are children whose parents are violent toward their other spouse and who, as children, grow up in a home where dad has to have a restraining order against him. And they are totally confused as to why the police are involved, why dad is going to jail, and they have to get ready for school in the morning in a different house with a different relative in a different place. The reality of oppression and injustice is as close to us as it is anywhere. Places like the North Star Initiative will tell us that human trafficking is not just a nationwide problem or an international problem, but it's a Lancaster problem as well. And here's the problem that we feel like, okay? If you're honest about this, this feels like a really big systemic issue. You, you might feel like this character up here. If there's 500 holes in the dam, 
How in the world are you going to plug them all? Like, you just can't get everywhere. I can't respond to the kid who's in this situation or the, the tenant who needs help or the person who can't pay the rent or the, the individual who needs this kind of... I, what am I supposed to do? Like, there's so many things coming at me. What should I do? Legitimately, it's a fair question. How should the Christian respond in a world where oppression and injustice comes hot and heavy at us regularly, consistently, over and over and over again? Not just internationally, but locally, right here, what in the world is the Christian supposed to do about things that are off and wrong, abuses of power and injustice? What should we do? Because when there feels like there's 500 holes in the dam, what's the point of plugging them? It's just going to come somewhere else. We're going to look at that this morning. We're going to start by looking in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. The book of Ecclesiastes is found in what we call the Old Testament. If you flip to the middle of your Bible, you'll find the book of Psalms, and then Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes 3, verse 16 is where we're going to start this morning. If you've been with us a little bit, you know that um, my view of the person who wrote this book of Ecclesiastes as a teacher, Q, I call them Q because it's a Hebrew word, kohole, which means teacher, that I believe that the primary author to this book, Q, has a limited view uh, theologically, that they believe that the end of hope is death and that there's nothing more beyond that. And so my, my uh, interpretation of the book of Ecclesiastes is always going to carry uh, the theological grid of does this fit with the view of the resurrection? Does what Q is teaching fit with what we know of Christian hope? Okay. So here we are in chapter 3 and verse 16, and Q is giving us a view of oppression, which I think is very common even for us today, and we'll see what I mean here in just a second. And so here, here we go. And he says this in verse 16, And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. Now, this is a courtroom setting for Q, and he's saying in the place in the court of law where justice is supposed to be dispensed, where if you can go anywhere in society and find justice, it should be here. And he's saying, I, I didn't find it here. Of all the places that I should go, I can't even find it here. And you know this, if you can't find justice in the court system, in what society sets up as our legal standard of hope for, for justice, if you can't find any hope there, where's the hope for the rest of us? So he's saying from the top down, we're losing hope that justice can be served. Now, what I've done in this is I'm going to summarize um, Q's teaching with a couple of phrases throughout the next couple of verses. And so if I were to summarize his teaching here, I'm going to say this, and you'll see this building on the screen behind me, that here's what he's saying in verse 16. Injustice happens where it shouldn't. Okay? Fair statement. Injustice happens, that's what he's saying. Injustice happens where it shouldn't. And so he has two thoughts about it. His first thought is in verse 17. I thought in my heart, God will bring judgment, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. So here's what he's saying about this. He's kind of saying, but don't worry, God will judge. You ever have that perspective or know people that have that? And it's not altogether bad to say, listen, there's so much injustice, I can't control it all, but don't worry, God sees it all and he will bring about justice in his time. 
It's a good thought. It's theologically sound that God will do that. He will bring about this judgment. So if I can't control all of what ISIS is doing, if I can't control all of what the Taliban is doing, if I can't control all the human trafficking that's going on, I can maybe just say, I'm going to trust God that in the future, some way, somehow, sometime, God is going to manage that. All right? That's under his sovereignty. Okay? But he has a second thought. And this is why Q can be kind of both confusing and pessimistic. Verse 18. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. And he says the same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward, and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. Okay, so here's my summary of what Q says next in these verses. Actually, wait. Maybe he won't. Like, injustice happens where it shouldn't, but don't worry, God will judge. Actually, wait. Maybe he won't. Like, what he's saying now is, you know what? Who knows? Because I haven't died and come back to life. Like, who actually knows? Because I think God is doing all this so that we're reminded that our life is meaningless now. And he makes the case, hey, you're no different than an animal. The same judgment awaits you both. Therefore, everything is meaningless. Actually, wait. Like, maybe he won't. And then he makes a statement again in verse 22. And this makes logical sense. If life is meaningless and you're all going to die and we're just like the animals, this makes sense in verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work, because that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? And so here's my concluding paragraph or statement with, with Q here. I'm not sure, so enjoy life in the meantime. So if you read these statements down, he's saying, listen, injustice happens where it shouldn't. But you know what? Don't worry. God will judge. Actually, maybe, maybe he won't. I'm not sure, so enjoy life in the meantime. Like That's kind of his progression of thought along here. Now, do you know people like that? Do you know people who are just like, you know what? I'm sure that God will judge, maybe. I think he'll take care of that, but I don't know why he doesn't take care of that now. Like, if he's going to do it later, why doesn't he do it now? Well, I, I don't know. You're going to press me on how this is going to work? I don't know. I guess I don't know. I mean, I think someone told me one time that he would. I think in church they believe that, and I think the Bible teaches that, but I, I don't know. I guess we are kind of like animals. You know, we kind of, didn't we come from apes and gorillas? And I mean, isn't that kind of the way that, that works? And like, I don't know. But hey, enjoy life. Like, if you can enjoy today, enjoy it. This is Q's theology. This is his teaching on oppression. Like, it's there, and it kind of stinks. We sure hope God will do something about it sometime, but I don't know. You might be like an animal. If you can have a good day, have a good day. Okay. And he continues in chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. This is actually quite impressive to me. I'm very impressed with what Q sees. It takes effort to stop and recognize the tears that come from the oppressed. It takes a heart 
to even write this and to recognize the pain and the suffering that people go through. I'm very encouraged by what he writes there. And then he goes on in verse 2. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. Oh, but better than both, verse 3, is he who has not yet been, who has not yet seen the evil that is done under the sun. So in other words, here's Q's teaching. Oppression happens. It kind of stinks. I'm sorry that you have to see that. I wish you wouldn't have to see that. And look at, look at the pain that it causes people. Look at their tears. Look at the hurt. Look at the helplessness. See it. Sorry you had to see that. But the good news is the people who are yet to be are happier than those who are. And again, I'm sorry you had to see that. So here's what I would say Hugh's teaching on this is. It's one of, of apathetic sympathy. And it's a phrase that I'm creating to try to describe a phenomenon that, that I see happening and how some people will even deal with oppression. In other words, there's a sympathy to it. I see that you are in pain. I see that you don't have access to the, to the right things that you should have access to. I see that you are oppressed. Man, I wish I wouldn't have to see that. When is the commercial over? Like, when can I go back to my regular life? I'm not really going to do anything about it, philosophically, I agree that you're oppressed. That's right. You don't have what you should have. You have been wronged. You, things have gone wrong in your life, and it's maybe not your fault. I see it. I wish I didn't have to see it. And there's just not a movement beyond that. It's an apathetic sympathy. And that's a view that you know people will hold. The sympathy part makes us feel good because we, we kind of feel like we relate. Like, yeah, wow, I saw their tears. I'll think about you. I might even pray for you. Maybe I'll jot you a note, I don't know. But man, I'll, I'll shake my head and walk away thinking, man, that, that stinks. That's too bad. And it just stops there. And that's where it stops for Q because there's really no hope for him because this is all there is. Now, I want you to compare Q's teaching to that of Jesus. This is very, very, very profound. I'd like you to turn in your Bible, if you can, to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Luke, um, chapter 4. And this is so profound to me because Jesus enters the story. He enters the scene, and he brings such a different perspective. Such a different perspective. Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. Luke is in the New Testament. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. Matthew, excuse me, the third. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Luke uh, was a doctor, and he wrote an orderly account of things as they happened in Jesus' life. And this moment that we're going to read about is the moment in which Jesus introduces himself to people who wonder who he is and what he is here to do. Very important moment. And so, verse 16, He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Now you need to imagine this. People are gathered to hear. What is it that this man who's from here has to say? And he stands up, which is a little unusual, he stands up to read. 
and the crowd is waiting. What is it that you have to say? And here's what he says. Reading from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. End quote. And then verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and set down the position teachers take. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. What will he say about what he just read? And he began by saying to them, and this is so profound, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Amazing. It's amazing. Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I am the one who has come. To do what? Look at the language that is quoted from Isaiah. I've come not just to save in a philosophical, theoretical view. I have come, and here it is again, verse 18. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. All language that describes phenomenon that are very tangible and understandable by people. Jesus is saying, I have come to bring, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, that has a, a broad view, understanding that there's a, a, in the Israelite theology, there's a, if you will, a year or a future hope where all will be right. Kind of the year of Jubilee concept that, that God will set everything right in the world and his favor will be on us as people. And in that year, all injustice will be corrected. All oppression will be gone. And everything will be right in the world. And Jesus is saying, I have fulfilled that prophecy in your hearing. I am here to do this. Jesus takes what is a, an apathetic sympathy of a teacher like Q, and he turns it, if you will, into an activated sympathy. Okay? Into a sympathy, or a better word even would be a compassion a sympathy or a compassion that feels the pain of the poor, that understands the plight of the blind, that understands the oppression that needs to be freed, and says, I'm going to do something about it. I'm not just going to wait for the commercial to be over. I'm not just going to wish you well on my way through. I'm not just going to wish that I wish I hadn't seen that or I wish you didn't have to know that these are things that our families and our community are dealing with. I wish you wouldn't have to know that. This is, I know it, I see it, I'm sympathetic to it, and I'm going to do something about it. And I'm going to bring salvation and help to the people who need it. This is a story of the Good Samaritan. When the priest and the Levite walk by on the other side, and the, 
the Samaritan had compassion and acted on his compassion. Everywhere compassion shows up in the New Testament, it is followed by action. You cannot have compassion without action in the New Testament. This is why when Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and then 10, he says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. That's verses 8 and 9. And then verse 10 continues and explains that you have been saved unto good works. You've been saved unto good works to do the things that God has prepared beforehand for you to do. And so here's the, the deal. Here's the deal. That in the Old Testament, Q has this teaching, and it is a teaching that is, that is common today. You know people like this, and, and if I'm honest, there are, there are times that I am in this category of an apathetic sympathy, where I feel the pain, I see the pain, but I feel like, wow, there are so many holes in the dam to plug, I don't know even know how to plug one, and so, boy, I hope things get better for you. And then there's the activated sympathy of saying, you know what? There are so many holes in the dam, I'm going to at least plug one. And I'm going to do something about this. See, we have to begin by seeing what Q sees. We have to begin by seeing the pain, but then we need to respond the way that Jesus responds. We need to see what Q sees and respond the way Jesus responds. And let me just tell you, this is why. Okay? This is why I am so excited about what the Together Initiative is creating in our community. I don't know if you understand the, the depth, because I don't know if we've explained it as well as we could have, the unfolding story of the Together Initiative. In looking at our community from a social, spiritual, and cultural standpoint and saying, what do we need to do to activate compassion and sympathetic response in our community? The, the Together Initiative has moved us to a place in our community where we are trying to do something about the health needs in our community, the injustice, if you will, the struggles that many members in our community have with trying to get what we call a medical home, with trying to find a place where they can actually go to a doctor and have consistent medical care that works. You would be surprised to interact with the families that are struggling with what do we do with basic dental care, basic hygiene, basic doctor care, because it's well beyond the scope of their ability to even have access to that. To me, that's a Christian concern. That's an activated sympathy that says we need to do something about that. Education. The number of children in our community who need both preschool and post-secondary help. It's our interest in this together initiative to push into that and say we are going to provide and this is exciting because there's even there's families that you would know who are going to get the benefit of being able to send their children to preschool because of what the together initiative is doing and because of what GPC is doing in being involved in that process that is a that is a Christian concern and to be involved in poverty reduction in our community to take a look at people who are in rental situations or trying to buy homes or whatever it might be and just can't get into them or trying to get through that or trying to get the system of support in place to move beyond where they are and just don't have the relationships with people, don't have the support in place to move beyond where they are in life. And I look at that and I say, man, this is exciting what's happening. To activate Christian sympathy, to activate Christian concern and compassion. And so here's the deal as I think about this. We go back to our friend, because if you're anything like me, you probably will feel this way as you look out on life and see this guy, and you're like, how do I begin? How do I begin 
to plug the holes. And there's two questions you can ask, two ways to look at this. The one question will lead you toward, in my opinion, it will lead you toward um, apathetic sympathy, where you say, man, there's so much to do. There's so much to do. Ah, I hope it all goes well. I, ho- I hope somebody does something about that. And I, I, what's for lunch? Like, and I understand it at one level because it can be overwhelming. But what if we ask this question instead? If there are 500 holes in the dam, which one can I help plug? Which one can I help cover? What one person, what one project, what one place can I stick my finger to help? We don't need you to stick all your fingers and all your toes and all the holes in the dam, but we need one finger. It's the little step of moving from, I heard your story, I see your oppression, I see your tears, I see the struggle, to how can I help you? It's a big question to ask. It's so simple though, isn't it? It's going to work and seeing the employees that you work with and asking the question, how can I help? Sometimes not even asking them, but asking yourself, how can I help them? It's being a part of this community and like our Connect young adult group is doing, asking the question, how can I help? Saying, we'd like to do a service project in our community. How can we help? What is the most strategic way we can do it? This Saturday, they're doing that. This is what some of you have done with the summer enrichment program, volunteering your hours this summer to say, how can I help our students in this community? This is what you have an opportunity to do with whether it's cooking classes or some other workshops that we have lined up in the fall to say, how can I help? Some of you have driven people to appointments who've needed appointments. You're taking your finger and you're plugging the dam in one spot. Can you imagine, can you just imagine for a moment what it would be like if we, we could get this community each to stick a finger in the dam? Each to stick one finger in a hole and plug it. Each to look around and say, you know what, there's somebody that I can care for at a level that I haven't yet cared for them. I can take one more step. I can just ask the question, how can I help? I don't need to solve it all, but I want to move from apathetic sympathy, where I just see the pain, to an activated sympathy, where I do something about it. Can you imagine what that would be like? where businesses perhaps take care of something like the United Way Day of Caring on September 11 and 12, where we are working to renovate the old Paradise Elementary School and turn that into the Together Community Center, which will be the hub for so many social services and projects in our community, September 11 and 12. And your business and your employees, maybe you as a self-employed individual, take the day off on Friday and say, I'm going to go give my time, and I'm going to help plug a hole and make a difference in this community right there. There's a myriad of ways, but it comes down to the question of can I take the step and just move in that intentionality from I see the pain, I see the struggle to what can I do to help? Can you imagine? Can you imagine what this community would be like if we were full of people who asked that question? What can I do just to plug one hole. How can I help? Jesus came, and he said it clearly in Luke 4. He came to bring salvation. He came to bring hope, both beyond the grave and here, to bring hope and help for those who need it the most. Will you pray with me? 
Our good God and Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and for the challenge that it presents to our will and to our heart, for the mirror that it can hold up to our schedules and to our natural inclinations. It, it takes an effort, and we know this, to move from seeing the struggles around us to doing something about it. And I pray that we would be men and women, young men and young women, students, who are about that, who take that next step of activated concern and activated compassion and care to love well, to serve well, and to demonstrate the effects of the gospel where anywhere we see that brokenness, we can show the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ who brings wholeness and redemption and fullness of life for all those who are poor, blind, in prison, and oppressed. Give us the courage to do what we know we need to do with the things that we heard this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.